You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts while the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, Lauren here. I just wanted to start off with a programming note. We released a bonus episode yesterday that you may have missed in your feed. Aaron conducted a one-on-one interview with Jonathan Abrams, author of the newly released book, Boys Among Men, that chronicles the preps the pro generation of basketball players. It's a great interview and a great book, in my opinion, so if you haven't already, be sure to listen to that after you're done with this episode, and look for Boys Among Men wherever books are sold. For this regularly scheduled team interview, we're going to be talking about the Pacers with Jared Wade. He's an editor at 8 points 9 seconds, the great Pacers website, on the fan-sided network. I've known him for a long time, but I never knew this one weird fact about him, which is that he hates bananas so much that he doesn't even like being in the same room as them. Hey, Jared. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, how's it going? Good. So let's set the scene first for the Pacers. Right now, they're five games over 500, 36 and 31, and seventh in the East, but only three games behind third in that crowded Eastern Conference. Last season, they didn't even make the playoffs at 38 and 44. Other than the obvious thing being the return of Paul George, whom we'll get to later, what are the other big things in your mind, if anything, that have made that difference between this season and last season's performance? Yeah, I mean, obviously Paul George, right? I mean, one of the best, arguably the best 10 players in the league, certainly, you know, both ways, one of the better players who plays great D and and can score here and there as well. You know, I, I think as far as statistical terms goes whatever a, a you know win share or whatever he's not a six win difference guy but um you know it's just changed the whole team with him being there that said obviously monte ellis has been a big big lift pace have really lacked i mean almost forever to be honest a guy who can just get to the hoop off the bounce and really who thrives with the ball in his hands i think monte's reputation is not always the best a little bit of a gunner inefficient but um, he's been pretty good at that this year. He's actually his usage rate is way down. I think it's it's career low or, or maybe as low as any time since his rookie season. Um, his field goal attempts per minute is is down like a lot from his even Dallas days when he was kind of maturing more. Um, he's distributing really well. Doesn't seem to be calling his own number uh, excessively. Distributes a lot. Been pretty good in the pick and roll game. And his defense has actually been really good. You know, I mean, he's not like a Avery Bradley or, 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 you know, Patrick Beverly type of guy who's going to be in your face all game, but he, he's really good at, at uh, knowing when to gamble in the, in, in the passing lanes and getting steals and just being disruptive in general. I think that was going to be a big backslide for the team a lot this year. People expected, but the defense is still strong. I mean, even with the lack of Roy Hibbert and, and David Less, they've kind of, they've kind of changed to a more turnover forcing defense. And they get a lot of points in transition. Monte's, you know, doing that. He seems to get a breakaway layup almost every game. So those things. And then Miles Turner. I mean, he's come on since since the All Star break. Really, a little bit before that, he was, he was he was starting to break out. Moved him into the starting lineup. They abandoned their plans to do kind of a small ball thing, which was mainly CJ Miles at the four, 
and we had some success and he started slumping and, and he got hurt. And so they kind of abandoned that. And then Miles Turner just proved that he deserves to be in the starting lineup. And he's been a force. I mean, he's, he's kind of a little bit hit, hitting some rookie wall aspects. Now you can, you can see it in his numbers and his, his outside of the paint defense is, is suspect at times. It's, it's caused him to not play in crunch time a few, few games recently. But I mean, he's just, he's a really, really good shooter. He knows how to score early in a career, in his career. I mean, a lot of people thought he was going to be a project. I think even Larry Bird thought two to three years really before he was going to have a huge impact. And I mean, there were, there's been games where he's their second best player easily. So, I mean, those are the big things. And you mentioned, and we all remember two summers ago when Paul George suffered that gruesome injury, broken tibia in a warm up game leading up to the FIBA World Cup that kept him out for the entirety of last season. This season, he's made a really impressive comeback. Do you think he's already back to the form that he was before the injury? And how far do you think he is from being back to being a all-around elite top 10, top 5 NBA player if he's not there already? Yeah, I mean, I think he's as, he think he's as good as he was. Um, in some ways, he's improved, to be honest. He came out of the gates incredible i mean he was player of the month in november not that that's some prestigious award but i mean his numbers were, were ridiculous he was shooting like 45 percent from mid-range he was shooting mid-40s from three i forget the exact scoring average he was up at 26 points a game eight boards you know six assists five six assists you know he's putting up a borderline lebron numbers tracy mcgrady numbers um for that month and the pacers went 11 and two so i mean you couldn't you couldn't argue with anything um, he's still playing good defense, very good defense at the time. Then he really tailed off. I think, I, I don't know the exact dates, but from early December, let's say around the 5th of December or so through the all-star break, he shot something like 38, 39%. Um, his three point was down to 33, 35. He was forcing shots. It seemed to be a case where he got tired he was losing his legs a little bit. He said this a few times, and, and Frank Vogel, you know, told the media a few times that he needed to find ways to to get him a little more rest. They even they changed up a little bit. He usually plays the whole first quarter, and like around mid January, that kind of start, started changing in some games. He'd, he'd come out after eight minutes, so they were trying to remedy that problem. And I think it was just a psychological thing where he came back, and he was just so good that he was just like. Wow, this is this is incredibly easy. I am just the best player in basketball. I mean, he, he was arguably the second best player in basketball through December first. Then those mid range shots, he started missing them, couldn't hit as many threes, and he seemed like he couldn't adjust to try to get more efficient shots. He just kept going back to that well. You know, it was almost like like a guy at a blackjack table or, or a poker game, just doubling down and doubling down on the same things. When they when they caught a, a losing stretch and he couldn't he couldn't turn it around. It wasn't until the All Star break until you know he kind of he got that week off. I mean he played in the game obviously, but seemed to get his legs back a little bit. And he's been he's been it's not as consistent as it was at the beginning of the season, but he's been back to you know regularly scoring twenty five plus on efficient numbers. Yeah, November was really impressive. Thirty points per game, eight plus rebounds, forty nine percent from three, and the Pacers were eleven and two. You just did a great job of explaining where the drop-off was for him, what went wrong, and that was noticeable. Also, C.J. Miles, his play dropped off a little bit, too, after November. Outside of those factors, why do you think that level of play wasn't sustainable beyond November? I know, obviously, Paul George is a huge part of their team, but were there other factors? It was a little bit just unsustainable. I forget their exact three-point percentage 
they were second or third to the Warriors. I mean, and, and you know, it was, was, was taking a ton of threes and making a ton too. So yeah. that certainly helped. And I think George Hill was close to 50%. All three of those guys were like 50% from three, which obviously wasn't sustainable. But it seemed as though they could all be 40, 41% for the year just because of the way the offense was going. And they were getting a lot of open shots. And that kind of just tailed off. It's hard to say exactly why. I mean, I mean, Frank Vogel is not an offensive genius. You can look at the efficiency numbers he's had throughout his tenure there. Some of that was slow plodding Roy Hibbert basketball overly emphasizing the post game in an era when that was going away but he Vogel's gotten away from that this year and he hasn't been able to you know run a much more efficient efficient offense either so I think some of it's just that you know those little things throughout the games they're turnover prone I mean Paul George that's his probably his biggest flaw he just throws some cavalier careless passes it's just mind-boggling at times that someone that's as good as him can throw some of the nonchalant terrible passes that really shouldn't even be happening in a JV game. You know, jump passes, <laughs> didn't even look before he threw it, not in a good way, you know. Tracy McGrady so had some qualities like that. They, yeah, I mean, people compare them to a lot, body-wise and, and other things. So maybe, maybe there's something to it. Less sleepy-eyed, though. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He's a little more awake. But um, CJ Miles, we've been talking about him a little bit. The 2015 calendar year for CJ Miles was damn good. In 2016, he's really struggled on offense. Why do you think that is? He's also um, right now battling a calf injury. Should be back soon. Yeah, no, he 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 got back. He's um, I think he's played three games now, but he missed a bunch. I, I forget exactly, but ten games or so. And he was he was banged up before the All Star break even. So I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, he's look at his career. He's streaky. I mean, he'll he'll his monthly splits have always been all kind of all over the map. He's a 45% three-point shooter sometimes, and then he's down at 33%. He's a good shooter, but even – you just always see it. You know, if he starts hitting in a game, he just starts pulling up. And, you know, he's kind of a low-key J.R. Smith type of guy, but not – he doesn't push the limits when he's off as much as someone like a J.R. or a Nick Young or someone would. But, I mean, he's very streaky, and that's just kind of part of it. But I think what really happened was Larry Bird this offseason, David West left to go take no money and play for – a team that's going to lose to the Warriors. Then they traded Roy Hibbert for what seemed to be nothing. They got they ended up getting Jordan Hill out of it, which was he's been good this year. So they were trying. Larry Bird's goal was to go small. You know, he re-signed Rodney Stuckey and picked up Monte Ellis, which a little redundant, but they kind of thought that was going to be good. He even went out and got Chase Budinger, thinking that he could be a you know small ball wing at times and and help in that way. And then Paul George basically refused to play the four. There was all these kind of comments back and forth in the media where Paul George was like, yeah, I think it's okay once in a while if I play a few minutes. And then they were like, no, we're, we're going to start you at the four. And then Paul George was like, oh, yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. And, and Larry Bird even said, well, it's a good thing he's not the one making the decisions around here. So it kind of got a little like heated. I mean, it never it, it's a small media market, so it didn't really boil over or anything. But they, anyways, they started the season with C.J. Miles at the four, who should not be playing the four when he's three inches shorter than Paul George, clearly can't defend people as large. So I think that was part of it, and CJ did that. I mean, that they were, that's what they were in November. They were really small most of the time, or at least 50% of the time. And I think his body got beaten up a little bit. I mean, he was guarding some big dudes. I mean, I, they, against teams like Memphis and stuff, they, they, they kind of got away from it a little more. But, I mean, there were times where he was guarding Zach Randolph and, and uh, Blake Griffin and, and things like that. So 
I think over time he just got beat up and, and that's what, I mean, his injuries haven't been like a big ankle sprain that was obvious. They've kind of been wear and tear injuries, you know, calf strains and a few other lower leg things. So he's getting older himself too. So, you know, when that stuff happens, your shot just goes. I mean, there was one point where I think he was like three for 35 of his last threes or something like that. It'll be really, really bad at one point. And then he went out and started missing games. And, and now he's back and he kind of looks like himself. He's still not really shooting right. But, he's you know, I think he's shooting like 33% in a really small sample size since he's back. And he, and he looks a little better. So so hopefully that will turn around somewhat. Yeah, I, I guess the 43% from beyond the arc on seven three attempts per game, he kind of just relegated to the mean, I, I think. Do you yeah, think- and I think that was that was probably a part of the small ball as well. Because I think, you know, teams were not used to that against the Pacers. There was no film on them earlier in the year. So I think he was getting a lot of open shots as well. George Hill, too. I mean, George Hill's George Hill was at like 55% of his corner threes through Thanksgiving or something like that. So I think it was just, while the offense wasn't like incredible, it was like unfamiliar to the opponent. So they were just, you know, they were just getting lost in transition in other places. They were just getting a lot of open shots. Also, he has a really quirky style, just the way he moves, how he shoots. He's a lefty. It must be interesting to guard from a defensive standpoint. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. Another guy who you mentioned who I think seems to fly on, under the radar for a lot of people who don't follow the Pacers closely, and especially in this era of great point guards, is George Hill. Personally, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he does on the court. Then again, some people have the criticism that he isn't as much of a facilitator as you might like from your point guard. What's his importance to the Pacers, and how is his role on the team? Yeah, it's a, it's a strange deal because, I mean, people forget like last year as well because Paul George missed the whole season. I think he played the last six games or something like that. But he missed the whole season. David West missed like 20 games. And George Hill essentially missed – he played a little bit in November and then he basically missed two months and he played like the last 35 games of the year. And he was incredible. He, he was what has become termed as aggressive George Hill in kind of the Pacers' Twitter community. And he was taken – you know, high, way higher than average field goal attempts per minute for from his career. You know, back to like his early days when he was a gunner off the bench for the for the Spurs, and he was shooting great, facilitating. He was getting assists. I want to say he was averaging like 17 points a game over that stretch, looking like a borderline all star. So people were kind of excited that that would happen. You know, his first full year back with Paul George, without Lance Stevenson, kind of holding the ball a lot. And then it just kind of hasn't happened this year. It's partly because Monte is there to suck up a lot of the ball. But um, it's kind of just seems like it's also just his nature to not really call his own number that often. He'll do it on a game-to-game basis here and there and, and really you know get to the rim. He'll be more aggressive in the pick and roll, not just kind of passing the ball off. But um, he's a little bit just of a passive guy. And early in the year, that was actually paying dividends because he was just camping out in the corner and making a lot of threes. I don't know that the offense is really suffers a lot because of his inability to kind of be an assist man. It's, it's hard. It's hard kind of covering the team because there's a lot of people in the Pacers fan community who really dislike George Hill a lot. Like they want him traded years ago. And they think that one of the main reasons they could never get past the heat was because of George Hill's inability to, to really be the difference maker especially like in a matchup against Mario Chalmers or something. And then we saw like in the playoffs, like Jeff Teague would get by him a lot and things like that. So, so that aspects of his defense was always kind of criticized. So I'm kind of probably overcompensate a little bit and try to not be super critical of him because I mean, he's like, like you're saying, I mean, he's just, he does all these things. I mean, he's, 
he's maybe not a point guard, but he's a very, very good basketball player. He can do everything. He's a good shooter. He's a good passer. He knows the offense. He runs the plays. He's, he's a fantastic defender in many ways. I mean, when it was him, Lance Stevenson, and Paul George on the perimeter, I mean, that's just so much length because, I mean, George is only – 6'3 or something, but he's got a 6'7, six, 6'8 six, wingspan, long arms, plays the passing lanes. He's just, a, he's just a, a beast down there. I mean, you know, no, even bigger guards can't really post him up. Even guys like Dwayne Wade can't really abuse him down low that well because, because of his, I wouldn't say his strength, but it's just kind of his, his positioning, his, his knowledge of where to be and all those things. So, I mean, he's just a really smart, heady player and, and Vogel loves him for that reason. There's questions about his, obviously, he's not, he's not really a true point guard. I mean, he's not. He's not distributing the ball. He's not Chris Paul. He's not even like a Drew Holiday or something like that. You know, he's he's more of a shooter, spot up guy who can get to the rim on occasion, but just doesn't seem willing to do it, and and certainly isn't doing a lot of moves and dump offs that are getting guys wide open layups. Yeah, and he probably gets unfairly linked to Kawhi Leonard a little bit because of the trade that brought him to the Pacers, I guess. Yeah, it's not the best for him. <laughs> Earlier, you talked about how the departure of Roy Hibbert changed a little bit the way that the Pacers play. But another thing is that it opened up some more minutes for Jan Mahimi, who's flourishing in that role. He rarely started games prior to this season, but this season he started every game he's played in. How's he taken advantage of that opportunity with Hibbert and, to a lesser extent, David Westcott now? I mean, it's it's been remarkable. I, I've always been a Jan Mahimi fan. Um, if you look at his numbers back when Roy Hibbert was like leading the league, you know, Sport View came out at one point, right? And Roy Hibbert was the best player in the game at protecting the rim. Everyone else's field goal defense of shots taken within the restricted areas, like you know, fifty plus percent. Roy Hibbert was always like forty, forty one percent. That was right there around, right, either leading the league or top three. And then creeping right behind him, top five, top six, at like 43, 44% was always Jan Mahimi. Some of that, you know, you got to credit to Frank Vogel. He had, he had a defense set up. I don't want to say he invented verticality, but he kind of crafted defense around Roy Hibbert's really one elite skill. And then when Jan Mahimi came off the bench, he just kind of replicated it and did the exact same thing. But he was always doing it against bench players. So you didn't really, you know, it's hard to equate Roy Hibbert doing it against Carmelo and LeBron and, KD and all these people, whereas Jan Mahimi was doing it against, you know, Jamal Crawford at best and, and generally second tier players late in the rotation guys. But I mean, there was always the, the understanding that his defense was very good and he was much more mobile than Roy Hibbert, whereas Roy Hibbert got exploited in the Atlanta series, for instance, that year they were number one seed versus eight and, and the, the Hawks almost knocked him off. I mean, Roy Hibbert was almost unplayable because they had, um, uh, what's his name? The bearded guy. Perowantich. Antich. Yeah, he was out. I mean, he wasn't even a great shooter, but he was out at three-point line. They had Millsap, you know, just stretching him, and Roy Hibbert just could not get out there and even get a hand near him. So so in situations like that, Mahimi actually is an athletic, large body, but, you know, he can he can move laterally and get out there and defend the pick and roll in, in ways that Roy Hibbert just can't. So there was always kind of a little bit of like, what if Roy, what if Roy Hibbert wasn't on the team and Jan Mahimi was just doing it? But his fatal flaw, he had the worst hands I've ever seen in my life. He just could not catch a pass. So in those games when Hibbert was hurt or, or um, Jan was just getting minutes with the starters, you know, Paul George would do this kind of nice move and get into the lane and draw two, just give him a beautiful pass, and then it would hit him right in the hands and go right out of bounds. So it was just kind of like, ah, oh, this is why he's always a bench player. This is why he's limited. And now I, I have no idea how it happened. He catches everything. 
he catches the ball on these dump-off situations, and he does, like, up-and-under moves on the other side of the hoop. He catches balls sprinting in transition and just dunks. I mean, he's he's getting to the point where if, if he had someone to throw him, like, better lobs, I mean, he's almost like a poor man's DeAndre Jordan right now. Like, he, he's finishing incredibly around the room, and, and even he's catching passes at the elbow and making, like, little crafty passes himself. And I mean, he's not young. He's 20. I don't know exactly what he is, but he's, he's, he's pushing 30. So I don't yeah. know how someone changes that at this stage in their career, you know? It's great to hear you talk about a guy like Jan Mahinmi. I think that's a big reason why we, because peripheral fans or, or fans of the NBA at large that don't really watch the Pacers, they might know about Paul George and Monte Ellis, but they would have no idea about what you just said about Mahinmi and, and his growth. So I think that's really cool. You talked a lot about Monte Ellis earlier in the episode about his reputation for kind of being a gunner and how he's toned that down a little bit. I think we're seeing a more mature Monte on the court. And apparently as he's aged, he's gotten to be a lot less selfish and less about me and more about the team. From what I understand, his field goal attempts per game has dropped by two and a half, which I think is a big margin for a guy of his caliber who really likes to shoot, like we said. He's just buying in. Is that your sense? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, I, I, would, I obviously didn't follow the Mavericks as closely, but I kind of got that sense that he had started to do that in Dallas. But they kind of had limited offensive options at times, so he kind of was still Monte have-it-all type of guy. I know, for instance, Johnny Opping just wrote a really good article about him. He lives in Dallas, so he covers the, the Mavs pretty closely and, and the, the Pacers just were one in Dallas last week, last Friday, I don't know, recently. So Monte got like a standing ovation from the from the fans and supposedly there was one instance where he kind of had like this little smirk or, or back and forth with with Chandler Parsons during the game and I guess they didn't get along very well because Parsons kind of had that view of him and you know, he played with him, so I'm sure he it was warranted at times, you know, that he didn't pass enough and, and Parsons obviously wanted more shots. But I know Dirk loved him. I mean, they, they gave each other a big hug when 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 Monte showed up and Dirk, I think Carlisle's well, you know, basically always say good things about him, his leadership, his off court stuff. And uh, that's what well, that's all we've been hearing about the Pacers. I mean, he's supposed to be the locker room leader in a way that you wouldn't think Monte could be. I think he's not the most vocal guy in the world, but he has been more, you know, talking to the younger guys on the team, coaching people up. And what's been big for the Pacers is they're kind of a bunch of whiners, low key. You know, everyone <laughs> talked about like the Heat and and Dane Wayne Wade and, and LeBron like during those series when they used to play each other. But um, Paul George is awful at it. He's getting a little better this year. David West was actually, you know, as much of a leader and kind of a veteran as he was, he was really bad at that. Vogel is actually terrible at it. He gets texts quite often for it and just. You look over at it all the time. He's got this whiner face on, talking about something about the refs. Whereas I feel like Monte never—I don't—I can't recall ever seeing him really get demonstrative with the refs and stuff. So that's obviously not the biggest thing in the world, but like it seems as though his personality is kind of rubbing off on the team a little bit. They seem to be whining a little bit less for any flaws that Monte does have. He seems to be very—he—he he takes responsibility for everything on the court. You know, if he makes a turnover, he owns it. He misses the last second shot. Yeah, exactly. Which is good and bad, I guess. For sure. But he never seems to want to be bailed out by a ref or um, looking for someone else outside of his own ability to score or do something on the court to really make the difference. So I don't know. That's something Paul George could use. Paul George could use a lot of self-reflection and 
he's taking responsibility for himself. I, I'm lacking exact words on how to say that, but that game that you alluded to, that was a big win in Dallas, and Monte was huge. He scored 17 points to go with seven assists and five rebounds. So that was important as the team just goes into the stretch run. Frank Vogel, this is his first NBA head coaching job. It's his sixth season with the Pacers. He's done a pretty good job from what I understand. What is it about him and his on- and off-the-court philosophy that has enabled him to find such a high level of success? Yeah, I mean, it's strange. When he first he, – he took over midseason for Jim O'Brien in Paul George's first year. So that would have been 10-11. And he ended up coaching them during like a – they played against Derrick Rose MVP year. Bulls in the first round. They lost five games, but it was like a pretty hard-fought series. You know, each, each game, none of them were blowouts. Each game was like five points within the last six minutes. And, and you know, the Pacers just weren't good enough to do anything. But, but they showed some stuff. But even that offseason, there was some hesitation about giving him the full job. Larry Bird, before they actually inked him to a deal, made him go out and hire some real assistants. They got Brian Shaw, and that was kind of like, I think, a security blanket for, for Larry Bird because he was a young guy. I mean, he's still a young guy, but he was like 37 or 38 at the time. I think we've seen some newer, co- you know, Brad Stevens and stuff have come in since, so that's not as crazy, but it's still really young, and he has never doesn't really have any NBA pedigree. Or it certainly didn't have like the pedigree that Stevens did at Butler. He was just an assistant who came up from being a video guy. It was it was kind of him and Spolster were very similar paths. You know, he's very positive. He's incredibly positive off the court to kind of a, a crazy degree. He's he's kind of shied away from that a little bit now. He's getting a little harder, but in his early days, he was just only said good things. I mean, that first year, he was convinced they were going to beat the Bulls. Then he was like convinced they were going to beat Miami all those seasons. Never says a bad word to say about anyone in the press. Uh, and he was players anyways. He's also, I mean, he's just a defensive genius. I mean, he can strap those those defensive teams in Indiana. I don't, I don't know that people really realize it, but I mean, especially that year when they were the one seed, they really tailed off at the end. But through like March that year, I mean, they were historically good. Their defensive efficiency rating was top one to top five all time, depending on when you were, you know, charting it during the season. And I mean, they were first in the league tw- two years in a row, top five every year. He's been there essentially in- until last year. They made defense exciting, which sometimes can be hard to do. Yeah. And the offense was so ugly that it kind of like still rubbed people the wrong way. And they weren't fun to watch overall. Generally, it was kind of like one of the few times when there was a Memphis Pacers game, you know, everyone was just like, oh, please turn the channel. Both teams playing slow and prodding and defensive. But I mean, they were they were great. You know, I mean, they they gave the Heat everything they could handle, you know, and with with a big disparity in talent and the Heat having three Hall of Famers and, and the Pacers having Paul George and, you know, some good players. So, I mean, that's I think this defensibility. I mean, even this year without the big guys, he's really I forget where they are right now in defensive efficiency, but it's pretty high for what you would think their 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 talent would be. Guys like Jordan Hill and Lavoy Allen and even Jan Mahimi, who people don't really understand is that good, and, and Monte Ellis and C.J. Miles and Rodney Stuckey. I mean, none of those guys are anyone that you're thinking about playing a lot of defense. But he still has them pretty high, and he's he's transformed it. Like, say, they're forcing more turnovers. He's letting them gamble more, going for steals. They transition a little bit how they're handling the pick and roll and stuff. So, I mean, he's just a really great defensive mind. I would say that's his, his key attribute and his positivity and just demeanor of always, we're always going to win. We're always in everything. It's, 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 uh, it's pretty good for the team. Coming back to the recent games, the Pacers are on a little bit of a hot stretch lately, other than a bad loss to Atlanta that they probably needed to pick up. 
in their last five games. They've got important wins against Boston, Dallas, as you mentioned, the Spurs, the Wizards. Do you think they're hitting their stride right now at the right time? Or are they still that team that we've seen this season that seems to struggle with consistency? Yeah, I mean, I still don't trust them all the way. I wouldn't have been last night. They beat Boston pretty handily. I mean, the final wasn't overwhelming, the one by five. But they were up by 10 with four minutes left and then missed some free throws late. And then Boston had a few kind of lucky buckets. That was impressive. Jay Crowder didn't play, but they've lost. They should be better than they are. They should be probably the fifth seed right now. I think they're one in six. Last I look in overtime games, they gave away an embarrassing number of late leads in before the All-Star break, like in that Christmas to, to mid-February zone. I mean, against the the Celtics, I think they got out. I think they gave up the last eleven points or something of the game. They were up. There was the same thing. They were up by ten, and then they blew it down the stretch. That that was in January or whatever. And that similar stuff happened several times. They just kept giving away leads. So I still don't trust them. They still have too many turnovers. They still don't have great late game offense. But since the break, they've beaten the Thunder, the Spurs in Dallas. In Washington, neither one of those are impressive, but they're kind of impressive for this Pacers team right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm starting to trust them. They've still got some issues, but with Paul George and Monte doing what they've been doing lately, they've been pretty consistent. The defense is still there, generally. I think they can beat anyone in the East, except obviously Cleveland and probably Toronto. I, I don't think they can beat Toronto either. But I, I think in a first-round series against any team, they, they can beat it. And I mean, they're, they, have, they have a high ceiling. When, when both those guys are hitting... Miles Turner is a great jump shooter. He can score. Um, when if George Hill makes a few shots, you know they just have a they have a long, deep team. That you know guys like Jordan Hill and Lavoy Allen don't sound good, but they've been really good. I mean Lavoy Allen's plus minus this year are really really impressive. Jordan Hill has had some great games and just consistently produced, which is just weird to think about out of Jordan Hill. Rodney Stuckey was hurt for a long time in his back. The CJ Miles thing is still a problem, but I mean they they they. They've got a lot of good players on their team. So if they're actually hitting their stride to come playoff time, I think they can beat just about anyone in the East. Before we let you go, Ty Lawson struggled notably with the Rockets. The Pacers picked him up. What are the expectations there? I'm sure not a lot was put into that, but is that kind of like a low-risk, medium-reward type thing? Yeah, that's that's how I see it. I mean, I'm I'm expecting nothing. He got injured in his first—he played actually really well in five, 10 minutes, 5 minutes in his first game. Had like a really, really nice pass, like, you know, prime Ty Lawson pass where he kicked it out to tell Rodney Stuckey for a three on this kind of acrobatic jump pass, threw it behind two guys um, right on target, right on time. Um, so, you know, he showed his skill immediately and he got to the hoop one or two other times, but then he sprained his ankle or sprained his foot, I think is what, what they called it. And he hasn't played since. I imagine he'll get back on the court before the playoffs start. Can't be that bad of an injury, but I'm not. I'm not expecting anything. I mean, there, there are some Pacers fans in, in Twitter that are expecting him to have the starting job over George Hill soon and, and be a big player. Uh, you know, if he can come off the bench for ten minutes a game in the playoffs and and kind of hold down that that unit and not give up much, that's I think the best they can hope. And maybe he'll have a big game. Maybe he'll have, you know maybe maybe he'll drop twenty off the bench in one game. I mean, I think we know he's all capable of that at some point. So that's yeah, so what I think it was. Yeah, a low risk, and then. He's a free agent this summer, so presumably he does catch on and have a few games. He'll want to come back, and maybe they can sign him cheap next year and, you know, kind of get something for nothing. From Mihinmi to Vogel to Miles Turner, everyone in between, you gave us incredible material, so much detail. 
We didn't ask you about George Hill's hair, but other than that, it, it was a great time. We actually, if you check eight, eight, eight points, nine seconds, I think it was a couple of weeks ago now, we did a, a stat breakdown from, from the Cisco hair, George Hill, to the to the normal hair, George Hill. And, and the blonde George Hill outperformed him. He was shooting, you know, a lot better from three. I think his assist per game was up. So, um, yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be. So he, there, there, there's, a, there's some uh, there's some evidence that he should go back to that, even though visually he obviously should not. <laughs> we really appreciate you joining us from South America. Thanks again. Yeah, no problem, man. No problem.